Hello and welcome to Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. I think it's Dave's Music Room. It's Saturday, right? It's not Wednesday for CKCU and Music for a while. No, it's definitely Saturday. Welcome once again to another podcast of recordings from my own personal collection, recordings that I think you will enjoy immensely. At least I hope you're enjoying them. Otherwise, would you be tuning in? Well, you could be masochistic, but I don't think so. Anyhow, today we have a theme regarding the two major works that um, I'm presenting. Both are by Austrian composers. Both have very devotional aspects about them, one more overt than the other. The second may actually be a bit of a surprise, but I'll explain its devotionality when we get to it. But the work that we're going to start with today is a massive piece of... You're late. I see you sneaking in there. That's okay. That's okay. doesn't matter. You know, there's a chair over there. Why don't you go sit? Be careful of the tea tray. Yeah. Okay, you can sit. Why are you late? Never mind. doesn't really matter. Anyhow, I got the program started. You're just in time. I'm about to explain the first piece of music we're going to hear, and it's a massive composition, probably the biggest composition that we know of to emerge from the Baroque era. Something entitled the Misa Salisburgensis, and it is written for 54 individual parts. That's 54 staves of music just to perform this piece. And because it's 54 staves doesn't mean it's 54 musicians. Most likely singers and musicians were doubled. So we're talking about a performance of a piece of music that required well over 100 musicians and singers to perform. What is the whole point of this work? Well, first of all, a little bit about its history. Apparently, it was rediscovered in the 1870s in the home of a greengrocer in Salzburg. Apparently, it was paper that was going to be used for greengrocer purposes, but a certain music lover recognized that it was music and rescued it from its fate. Now, to me, that story is a bit fanciful because I've heard that kind of thing before, this whole thing about history being saved and somebody coming in at the nick of time. Regardless, let's assume that the work was rediscovered in the 1870s, and when it was, two musicologists by the name of August Wilhelm Ambrose and Franz Xavier Jelinek attributed the work to a composer by the name of Orazio Benevoli. It was left at that, and it was assumed, because of the title, that it was a work composed in and around 1628 to celebrate the 300th anniversary of the building of the Cathedral of Salzburg. So it was left there and nobody really questioned it. Until the 1970s, when a musicologist who specializes in Viennese music of the Baroque, especially music out of Salzburg and Vienna, a fellow by the name of Ernst Hintermeyer, started looking at the score and something seemed a little amiss. In fact, a little bit familiar, but he wasn't quite sure why until he realized he recognized the handwriting of the manuscript. It was the handwriting of a copyist. Now, we don't know the name of the copyist, and basically copyists were, cons were not really considered important as individuals. It was a good job to have to be associated with a composer or even a court. And the handwriting of this copyist Hintermeyer had um, seen before. Where had he seen it before? Well, Hintermeyer is one of the great experts on the music of Heinrich Ignaz Franz Bieber. 
and he recognized this copyist's handwriting because well over 98% of Bieber's music, when it was copied out, was in the handwriting of this particular copyist. What reinforced that is that there's another big work, not as big as the Mises Salisburgensis, but almost as big, that's in the same handwriting. It was also attributed to Benevoli. Well, that seems to be incorrect. Further examination, the forensics of musicology, and let me tell you, forensics is a big element in musicology, one that I kind of didn't really realize was a big thing, and if I'd have thought about it in my days as a musicology student at university, I would have so gone into this, because right now, forensics in music is a huge industry. It really helps people determine copyright or whether their copyright has been infringed. And uh, from my understanding, some of these uh, musicologists who specialize in forensics make good cash. Hmm. Oh, well, can't unring that bell. Anyhow, the forensics done on this score has to deal with watermarks. Watermarks are a great way of testing, of proving the age of paper. And in this case, and the paper, of course, was very special because it had to be cut to a certain size in order to take in 54 staves on one page. The watermark proved that the work was not from 1628. In fact, stylistically, this work is not even appropriate for 1628. It would be too advanced. The work was probably written in 1682 for the commemoration of the 1,100th anniversary of the Archbishopric of Salzburg, which is a huge event because the Archbishopric of Salzburg was a papal state, and that was very important in the Germanic-speaking world of that time, especially with the Reformation having uh, just uh, flourished and uh, occupying other parts of the Germanic land. So 1,100 years of Catholicism in the Habsburg Empire was very important. That makes sense that this work would have been composed for that particular event because it is huge, as was apparently the event itself, the ceremony, everything associated with that celebration. It makes sense. So if that's the case, and if Bieber did compose this work, why was his name not on the manuscript? Well, that was not an uncommon occurrence. But there may be a specific reason why Bieber's name was left off, and that has to do with the politics and the hierarchy of the social stratus within Salzburg at the time. Think office politics writ large. That's what was going on. There was a composer at the same time, a very good composer by the name of Georg Mufat, who was very prominent in the Salzburg Empire, if you want to call it that, in Austria-Hungary, and specifically in Vienna at this time. In fact, his social status was higher than that of Bieber, who was somewhat younger and was just um, appearing on the musical, uh, musical stage at that particular point in time. That Mufat was not asked to compose the music is rather interesting. That it was Bieber who was essentially commissioned to do this suggests that there was strong politicking going on, but he didn't want to offend anybody, so his name was left out. That is most likely the reason. Stylistically, this music has nothing in common with the music of either um, Mufat or the 
before attributed Aurezio Benevoli. So musicology has come a long way. The whole point of musicology, especially after the Second World War, was to sort of debunk a lot of mythologies. So its progress in, in determining historical significance of pieces of music, who are the correct authors, even, yes, even its historical context, as in the case of this mass, has come to prominence in the field of musicology and is very important. So the point of this work was to add to the festivities, to the incredible grandeur and drama of the celebration of the 1100th anniversary of Christianity in Salzburg, and it must have had an impact, although we do not have any uh, written commentary about the performance per se. The commentary that, we, that does exist about the whole thing suggests that it had tremendous impact. The other thing about this work is it was never composed, as a number of similar works were not composed, for longevity, for posterity. This was really a one-and-done situation because of the circumstance. So in some ways, its compass is different from compositions that composers, including Bieber, had hoped would be their record of note in history. It does not mean, however, that the work suffers in any way, shape, or form from inferiority, but it does tell you what its purpose was for and what its impact was meant to be. So I think you're going to hear that and get the idea, because as I said, this is this is a massive work. It's really quite something. We start the performance, and I should mention that the the breakup of the instrumentation and the choir is usually into a group of four. There were four organ lofts, or are four organ lofts, in in the Salzburg Cathedral, and most likely the musicians and singers were placed in all four. So the antiphonal effect must have been fantastic. And as big as this work is, it also has moments of incredible delicacy as well. Very quiet, very intimate, very delicate. You'll, of course, hear that in the Credo, which, especially at, at Incarnatus Est, etc., demands that sort of thing, a big contrast of huge and small for the intimacy. So the way this performance, and it's a great performance by uh, both the combined forces of the Musica Antiqua Köln and the Gabrielli Consort and Players, they have set this performance up to replicate as best as possible without actually celebrating a Mass, the way it would have been heard during the Mass. So just before the work starts, we have two fanfares that would have been heard either in a far-off corner of the cathedral or even outside. One is by Bartolomaeus Riedel, and the other is by Pater Ignatius Augustiner. These are little, little, but they're fanfares for trumpets and drums. Then comes the sonic boom, and I tell you, buckle up folks, it's going to be something. The Kyrie explodes like an asteroid of faith, let's put it that way. It's a massively stunning opening. I still prepare myself for its... Uh, impact uh, as I approach listening to it. It's followed by Gloria and then interpolated in between some of these movements, which is common practice, are a couple of other works by Bieber just to show you that the style is definitely Bieber, whereas the individual compositions heard in between the movements show more of his real flexibility and his real talent as well. So what we have after the Gloria is one of his sonate Tam Aris Quam Aulis Servientis, that's, uh, we'll hear Sonata number 12 from that set. 
then the credo, which is the heart of the work. It's a good 15 minutes long. Then another Sonate Tam Aris, number five. Then the Sanctus Benedictus, the Agnus Dei, another of Bieber's famous um, instrumental compositions, the Sonata Sancti Polycarpi. And finally, what was found appended to this score of the Mises Salis Bergensis is a motet called Plaudite Timpana. Since it was scored for the exact same forces, it's assumed that the work, this particular motet, was meant to be performed immediately after the Mass was over. And its text is a glorification, of course, of the Habsburgs and their history. Yeah, their family history. I'm telling you, their family tree probably looks more like a family wreath with all that inbreeding. Those chins, man. They must have been great for preventing the dribbling of soup or wine or something like that. And their nose and their lips. Anyhow, that's going on a bit too much about their own personal peccadillos. But you get the point. It's a huge sounding motet to and loud and raucous to help conclude this work. Um, yeah, it's meant to sort of express the power of the state, which of course is inseparable from the power of the church. Well, this is a magnificent work, as I said. Let's now listen to it. Here is what we definitely know as a work by Heinrich Ignaz Franz Bieber, his Missa Salisburgensis. It's performed by Musica Antiqua Köln under the direction of Reinhard Goebel and the Gabrielli Consort and Players under the direction of Paul McCreesh. Like I said, buckle up folks, this is going to be quite the ride.
How are your ears holding out? Are they okay? It won't hurt too much if I sort of talk at this volume level because that was a pretty big assault on the ears, was it not? That was the incredible Misa Salisbergensis by Heinrich Ignaz Franz Bieber. It was followed by another work which was meant to be performed at the same time as, uh, in other words, at the same event as the uh, Misa, the Plaudite Timpana, an incredible performance by the Musica Antiqua Köln under Reinhard Goebel and the Gabrielli Consort and Players under Paul McCreesh. They recorded that for Deutsche Grammophon for their Archive production series. It was recorded in 1977 around the time of its performance in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Now, that must have been a magnificent performance, but the recording was not made in the cathedral, most likely because its acoustics were are rather unwieldy for recording something that big. So, in fact, it was recorded at the Abbey Church of Saints Mary and Ethelfleda in Romsey, Hampshire. So I guess that that acoustic was easier to control. You can hear why it needs control, because the space is incredible. The spatial sonority of that work is fantastic. And really, a recording, no matter how good, can only give you an idea of its impact. It must be heard live, but how often are we going to do that? Now, it has been performed a few times, but it's still a massive work. It's really one of the biggest things until you get to the Romantic era. A hundred musicians in the Baroque era was unheard of. A hundred plus in this particular case. So there you have it. So let's take a little audible break. And I'd like to remind you that you are visiting Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. I would like to hear from you, especially what you thought of this piece. You can drop me a line at kapustadave at yahoo.ca. You can find that email address on the page of the podcast download from the podcast site that you go and listen to this podcast from. I'd also like to remind you that I have a radio show weekly now, Wednesdays at 10 in the morning Eastern Standard Time out of Ottawa on station CKCU FM 93.1, the mighty 93.1. It's called Music for a While and it's I think, a lovely way to spend your midweek, mid-morning coffee break. You will hear more of my favorite recordings. Now, for the second half, we have a work by the Austrian composer, who was also a very devotional man by the name of Anton Bruckner. Bruckner, of course, is very famous for his symphonies, and that's indeed what we're going to hear, but not one of his better-known symphonies. First of all, I should point out, of course, that Bruckner was a very, very devout man in his sort of what they call country bumpkin fashion. Now, he's been insulted many times for his naivete and simplicity, but we should remember that it is most likely that Bruckner is on what we would call, or what we did call the spectrum, it's a bit of an unfortunate term, the term neurologically divergent is probably a better way of describing that, and he most definitely was that. Unlike the uh, Bieber we just heard, which is a massive public display of faith, I would argue that all of Bruckner's works, and especially his symphonies, are personal displays of faith. Even though these are orchestral works from the Romantic era, and they do traverse a big orchestral scope, yes, they still maintain an intimacy. And even though these are works from the Romantic era, there still is a bit of a conservatist, conservative yeah, great word, conservativeness about these compositions. It may be one of the reasons why they were not so popular 
when they were first heard, and yet they did confound some people when they were first heard, probably because of the scope of, uh, of the works. They, they were quite long even, even at the time. But the main problem is that Bruckner was never assured of himself. He was never confident in his own skin of his own abilities. Here we have a symphony that uh, now, and I should point, uh, point out that, first of all, that there are nine symphonies in his numbered canon. But in fact, there are 11 symphonies extant. There is an earlier student symphony, which doesn't really bear any resemblance to what we know of Bruckner until you get to about the last movement. And then there's this symphony, a symphony in D minor, which was called symphony number zero, or Dinulte. I'll explain what happened. This is not an early work. This work was actually composed after his first symphony in 1866 and before his second symphony, now known as the second symphony, in 1872. So this symphony in D minor was composed in 1869. Even in his original output, in his original planning, he had numbered this work as number two, and the C minor that did become known as number two, he called number three. The problem was, especially for somebody like Bruckner, who was so unsure of himself, when it went into rehearsals with the Vienna Philharmonic under their conductor Otto Dessoff, they didn't like it. They ridiculed the work. And Dessoff even asked the composer, but where is the main theme? That, unfortunately, sent Bruckner into great despair, and he shelved the work. Around 1895, when he was reviewing his symphonies in order to have them published, he wrote on the manuscript, Gilt nicht, or does not count, and he wrote on the front page, Annulliert, or nullified, and replaced the number two with the symbol, the sort of the zero with a line through it, meaning not accepted. That's how it began to be known as Die Nulte, or Symphony Number Zero. The work went into hiding, he never destroyed it, but nobody really knew of its existence until it was rediscovered um, in around 1924. It's so unfortunate that Bruckner never got to hear this work. Why Dessoff and his orchestra ridiculed it is beyond me. Now, Bruckner would come across um, controversy and derision later in his life as well, but he did get a bit more backbone when that occurred. He just revised some of these works, which is really unfortunate. The fact of the matter is, I think Dessoff was incompetent. I don't think he knew how to follow this particular score, and I stand by that statement. The fact that he could say something mean, well, even Georg Tintner, the great Bruckner conductor, who also happened to be a Canadian, he commented uh, thus, thusly about what had happened. He said, how an offhand remark, when directed at a person lacking any self-confidence, can have such catastrophic consequences. Bruckner, who all his life thought that able musicians, especially those in authority, knew better than he did, was devastated when Dessoff asked him about the first movement, but where is the main theme? Therein is the problem. Bruckner always thought that other musicians, even composers, were better than him. His self-esteem was very low indeed, and this is so unfortunate. Fortunately, this work is now considered part of the Bruckner canon, so we really can say that there are ten symphonies. There is more and more an aversion to calling it symphony number zero, which is a good thing, just call it symphony in D minor, 
but I seriously doubt there will be a renumbering of the symphonies just like there were of Dvorak when the earlier five were finally incorporated into his canon and the number jumped from essentially five symphonies to nine symphonies. So that, that math sounds a bit weird, but one of his earlier symphonies was considered, I think it was number two. No, sorry, number, uh, number which one was it? I can't remember now, but one of the earlier symphonies was considered worthy to be part of Dvorak's canon. But in fact, he wrote nine symphonies as well. Nine seems to be a number after Beethoven, a bit of a, an omen number to try and pass. But I doubt that's going to happen to the Bruckner symphonies because it's so early to number numbers three to nine and renumber them four to ten. At least right now would be too confusing. So the work is in four movements. I think you will hear that there's absolutely nothing controversial about this work whatsoever, which again makes me question Desoff's own abilities. It's a classic, like I said, four movements, an allegro, an andante, a wonderful scherzo, and a finale um, with the tempo marking of moderato. Nothing wrong with this work. It's absolutely fantastic. Let's listen to it now. Bruckner's Symphony in D minor, subtitled Die Nulte, under the direction of Ricardo Chailly. He is conducting the Radio Symphony Orchestra of Berlin.
we just heard Anton Bruckner's Symphony in D minor, incorrectly subtitled D Nulte, or Symphony Number no. Zero, on account of poor Bruckner tried to excise it from his own catalogue, thinking it was a terrible piece of music. Very sad, but fortunately it survives, and we heard a great performance of it by the Radio Symphony Orchestra of Berlin under the direction of Ricardo Chailly. I love the second movement on Dante. It is so typically lyrical, Bruckner, and really a foreshadowing of what he was going to do in his later symphonies. I find, especially in the symphony, that Bruckner's great influences, Gregorian chant, plain song, Renaissance, early Baroque, choral music, and indeed Austro-Bavarian folk music play a great role in the influence of his compositions. Well, that makes a nice denouement to this podcast, especially after the massive Bieber Misa Salisburgensis. So, we're done. Dominus vobiscum ite Misa est. Well, I shouldn't be so presumptuous, but I think it's actually time for some Zacher Tort, since we've had all this great Austrian music. I certainly have my taste buds craving it. Just gotta go get some. So, as I said, that's it. Hope to see you next time, and I hope also that you will join me on my weekly broadcast out of CKC, CKCU-FM 93.1 in Ottawa. You can hear it online at ckcufm.com and my other show, Music for a While. Until next time, in Dave's Music Room, I'm David Kavlovic. Thank you for listening.